Great to be with you. Take your Bibles if you would, and let's look at Luke chapter 9. As you know, we have been just sort of sitting and camping out on Luke 9 verse 23 because we felt it important to take this statement by Jesus about true discipleship and and look at it from every angle and particularly begin to apply it in some practical ways. Luke 9.23, you remember Jesus says to the crowd on the hillside, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Years ago, you know, decades ago, they would, in evangelism programs, they would say, hey, you just need to tell people that God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their life. And that was popular terminology in the day, and, and um, I think obviously it intended at the beginning to mean that God does love you enough to offer you the gospel, and, uh, and if you come to Christ, there will be an eternity beyond this life that will be indeed beyond your, what you can imagine or think. But over time, it kind of became this way of evangelizing that, that got cheapened. As theology got murky, as churches got pragmatic, as people kind of gotten sh- shallowed up and began to accept any testimony in the body of Christ of someone who said they love Jesus, the statement, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, kind of became a cheap statement. Uh, what it really meant was that uh, everything's going to be great. When you come to Christ, He's going to supply all the things that you've wanted and man has kept from you. All the earthly things that you've desired are going to be taken care of by God. He's not going to allow you to go through the trouble that you've been going through and the afflictions are going to stop. And of course we saw it as cheap not too long after it became cheap because frankly that's not the experience when you come to Christ. If you give your life to Christ, what we, what we realize very quickly is that certain spiritual realities begin to happen. When you come to Christ, indeed your guilt for your sin is lifted and you are forgiven and covered but sin itself is not eradicated till we meet Christ and so you got to battle sin and you start to see things in your heart that are there that you never saw before you weren't guilty about them before you just lived your life you kind of went your own way you were autonomous you did what you wanted to do and now all of a sudden you've got this sense in which the spirit of God is convicting you that's not fun doesn't seem like a wonderful plan And then there's the testings of your faith, and you you go through affliction because we live in a fallen world, and until Christ comes back and restores all things, uh, men are going to wax from bad to worse, and evil's going to get to the place where it's on the rise. We're seeing that in our culture, and we can hardly turn on the news anymore without devastating tragedy on on an astronomical scale even this week. And you see that, and you say, what happened to this wonderful plan that people used to talk about? Look, the Christian life is is about following Christ, and Christ makes it very clear to those crowds on the hillside, as he did to his disciples, I'm headed to Jerusalem to suffer and to shed blood for the sake of sin. Are you willing to pick up your cross daily and follow me as a disciple of mine, even if it means you lose everything, even if it costs everything like it costs me everything? Because you can't say you want Jesus and imagine that it's going to cost you nothing. In fact, when you come to Christ, your, your whole, everything changes. Your paradigm of life changes. The scriptures say that you are now the light of the world, Jesus said to his people, those that wanted to follow him. You're the light of the world. And you've been set apart to be a light in the darkness, Philippians 2, 5. 
and you've come out of the world. Jesus would tell his disciples in John 15, 19, you're not of the world because I've chosen you out of the world. And now that you've been chosen out of the world, the world hates you. Why? Because you're not the same. They don't resonate with you like they used to. Man, you hung around with people in the world, they resonate with you. You live the same way, say the same things, you have the same interests, you have the same pursuits. It's dog eat dog, get what you want, go for the earthly gusto. Everybody lived like that when you were a pagan, and, and that's how life was. Everybody resonated. But when you come to Christ, all that changes. In fact, just to, just to sort of remind ourselves that when you say you're going to love Christ and follow him, and you give your heart to him by faith, and you become his child, you no longer live in the darkness of your old life. Your old life is dead. So that means your dearest friendships have changed. All of your non-Christian friendships went from being pals in life to, to gospel interests. Now their souls are at stake. Now it's a bigger deal. And then strangers within a local church instantly become your new spiritual family and those with whom you are united in Christ. And the world starts to take notice not because they resonate with your way of life, but because there's such a stark contrast between this new paradigm of life in, in your circles. There's such a contrast between light and darkness. It also costs your autonomy. You used to make decisions as the captain of your own destiny. Now it's different. You never made decisions with reference to God's will and His glory, but now everything's different. Everything's for His glory. You used to walk according to the course of this world, Ephesians 2. We formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We were alienated, hostile in mind, the scriptures say. But now, whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, whatever we do in word or deed, we do it all to the glory of God. It's for His will. It's for His purposes. Romans 14.8 says we live for the Lord. So that in every decision of life, whether it's a simple decision, mundane decision, or a serious, critical decision, there's a strong and constant undercurrent of dependence upon the will and purposes of God. We live in light of His glorious sovereignty, and that has humbled us. And so we know with the Proverbs that the mind of man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. We don't go around saying, I'm going to go do this, I'm going to do this, and you know, God can sort of get in line when He's ready. Because like James 4, whatever plan we make, we submit it to the Lord and say, if you will. If the Lord wills. That's what it means to take up your cross daily. Bear the life and the mission and the purpose God has given you to bear. And it's costly. It costs your friends in the old life, the old ways. It may cost your reputation. Even your personal security and your safety. Jesus knew that. Hebrews 13, 12 to 13 says Jesus, when he suffered, he went outside the gate. In other words, they crucified him out where they burned the trash. They crucified him outside the city walls, out where he had a criminal's death. He was mocked. His dignity was, was stripped. And there he died a criminal's death, and he, he pour, bore in his own body the guilt of our sin. So he bore the reproach of someone who was allegedly a criminal, though he'd never committed a sin. And the writer of Hebrews says, you, as believers who follow Christ, you come outside the gate, and you bear his reproach. If he suffered, you suffer. If he 
walked the path of pain, you walked the path of pain. If he laid down his life, you laid down your life. If it cost him everything, it costs you everything. If anyone desires to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Look, we have been just looking at the practical side of what that means. What does it mean to have more of Christ in your every decision because you love him and you want to follow him? You want to bear his reproach. Whatever it might mean, I'll take a blow for Christ. Whatever it might mean, I'll live for you. Whatever it might mean, I'll follow you. If it costs me my personal preferences, fine. My reputation, fine. The old friends, the way I comfortably lived, fine. Lord, I just want you and less of me. Well, if you're going to do that, you're going to have to die to self. And as Luke says, Jesus made the comment, you take up that burden daily. The burden of the death of self. What does that look like practically? Well, we've been looking at that. And I told you I was going to give you the eight practical steps, and we've been in the fourth one, but let me just remind you where we've been. The first step to dying to self in this way is to go to him every day for understanding. I mean, if you leave yourself to your own thoughts, you're in real trouble. I mean, aren't you aware now as a Christian that that when you're left to your own opinions, they get murky. Truth gets murky. Everything gets speculative. It doesn't take too long. You start reading error. It doesn't take too long. You start listening to some influential teacher. It doesn't take too long before you start putting in stuff that isn't clear and definitive from Scripture. That stuff starts to get murky. And so if you want to die to self, stop living every day as if you can handle it. Get up every day and say to the Lord, I cannot handle it without you. I need understanding. And then, secondly, the second practical step is orient your life to promote more Christ-likeness. Orient your life toward truth. Sometimes we, we just have a very undisciplined way. We go through our day, and instead of being oriented toward that which promotes Christ-likeness, we're self-indulgent. And so we're constantly taking a step forward and three or four steps backward. So the death of self-reliance comes from praying for spiritual understanding. The death of self-indulgence comes from orienting your life toward truth, 1 Peter, 1 Timothy 4, 7 says. Thirdly, you remember we spent time talking about the fact that when you hear the truth, when you see the words of Christ, when you hear the teachings of the Lord and His Word, when God tells you what He wants you to do, you've got to allow the truth to indict you and correct you and shape you and renew you. Sometimes that's where we, we get off the train. We just push back against the Lord. We don't allow the truth to indict. We argue with it. We go right out those doors. We come back in the next week to ready to argue again. We go right out those doors. We're not letting the truth renew our minds, shape our perspective, because we're not humble and the soil's not soft. We're just not willing to be convinced or convicted. And so we leave with guilt from the Holy Spirit. Look, you want to die to self, then die to your own opinions, die to your own arrogant perspectives, die to your own ingenuity, die to your own thoughts, your own self-exaltation. Allow the truth to indict you and correct you. It will soften your heart. It will humble you like nothing you've ever known. It will make you clean and clear in your thinking. It will build discernment. You'll see things you never saw. 
And in this fourth practical step, we started it last week because we're talking about sealing up or closing the portals in your life through which temptation comes and, and makes us weak. Permanently sealing up sin's portals in your life. This is the death of self-deception. If you don't want to be deceived, you're going to have to look at your life and take inventory and take stock and say, look, there are things that I involve myself in that in and of themselves are not sinful, although sometimes we find out that some things are blatantly sinful. We just ignored that fact. But there are things in our life that are portals through which sin is flooding. And over here, we're bailing water like crazy to live a godly life, and we've got a major leak over here. And so we've been talking about that, the first of which was friendships. Friendships. I mean, Proverbs is clear. Proverbs 14, 7, we looked at it in detail last week. Leave the presence of a fool, or you will not discern the words of knowledge. You cannot spend time with fools and discern the words of God properly. And so we, we looked at all kinds of friends you ought to stay away from. Scoffers, arrogant talkers, people who are anti-authority, unteachable people, liars, those who scheme to do evil, the angry and unrestrained kind of people who are unrepentant in those patterns of life. Don't be around an angry, unrepentant, vengeful kind of person. The whisperers and flatterers, stay away from them, Proverbs says. Those without restraint or conviction, those without self-control, they wander into every path of life unfiltered. Stay away from them. Stay away from people who love foolish behavior. Sometimes friends are a portal through which comes a flood of temptation and sin. Then we talked about defiling environments and media. Defiling environments and media. When you involve yourself at some level with something that may or may not be overtly problematic, but you involve yourself at some level where it begins to undermine your convictions and crowd out your appetite for higher spiritual ideals. Remember I mentioned when you spend time with people or surroundings which are overtly blasphemous. When you spend time in those environments where people call good evil and evil good, that's a problem. Environments or media where perversion is celebrated rather than dealt with truthfully. Where greed is encouraged and exploited. Where meaningless evil violence is celebrated and accepted, but it's meaningless. It doesn't have any good that prevails over evil. It's not a story or a plot that prevails over such things. It celebrates meaningless violence because that's the barbaric nature of where our culture is going. And then there's just voyeurism, watching indecency and illicit sexuality. These are portals you must close. I want to give you a few more practical portals today before we go to step number five, and we'll finish the other steps next week. Here's a few more portals through which temptation and sin come, right? Just some practical things. Another portal is idleness. Another portal is idleness. Look for a moment at Proverbs 19. Proverbs 19. And when I say idleness, I'm not talking about sitting still. (laughs) I'm not talking about moments of calm reflection. We're not talking about that. When we say 
that idleness is a portal through which sin can come. We're not talking about enjoying a a much-deserved mental and physical and emotional break after a weary work week. We're not talking about the quiet meditations or contemplations of the heart where you have long episodes of pondering things that are on your heart and burden you and concerns and even the joys of the truth you've learned. I'm not talking about that. When I say idleness is a portal through which other sins flood into your life, we're talking about what the scriptures call a life of slackness, a life of slackness or laziness. Proverbs 19, verse 15, laziness casts into a deep sleep and an idle man will suffer hunger. This is a proverbial truth that tells you the reality of life. Sooner or later, idleness catches up with you in a thousand different ways. And that's why Proverbs 6 gives the analogy of the ant. You remember Proverbs 6, beginning in verse 6, go to the ant, O sluggard, and look at her ways. I mean, it has no chief, no prince, nobody standing over her to tell her what to do. She just, by God's design, does the work in the off-season so that she's prepared in the difficult, challenging season and learn from that, that disciplined life. We're talking about slackness, laziness. <laughs> I remember when I created a Google page so that you know you could comment on friends' articles and blogs and things like that. And when we created a Google page, it just sort of throw up this little, I don't know, it's a comedic statement or question you're supposed to answer. And they come up at random, I guess, and mine came up, and I just chuckled because it said, here was the question, when you hesitate before hitting snooze on your alarm clock, are you being lazy? Think about it. Your snooze button goes off, or your alarm goes off, you want to hit the snooze button, you hesitate, are you being more lazy? I chuckled at that. In fact, I didn't know what to answer, so I just wrote this. People who hit the snooze button are too lazy to be hesitant. (laughs) They go for that snooze button immediately. Listen to the practical advice of the Apostle Paul talking to younger people in the church, particularly young widows, 1 Timothy 5. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul talks about what happens when you become idle, and he uses the the case study of a young widow in the church who has suddenly lost their life companion and they are warned here about becoming what he calls inactivity, inactive. They're warned about becoming inactive because various impulses and sinful habits rush in in an inactive life. He's not singling out young widows. He's just saying, look, you're gifted for marriage. You're not gifted for singleness. This tragedy of life has befallen you. Then be praying about the opportunity to care for a husband and a family once again. Some of the widows back in that day were making rash vows. You know, their husband dies, and in the grief of it, they say, I'll never marry again. And here they are, this young woman. And they're gifted for marriage. They're not gifted for singleness. Well, the Lord can sustain you by His grace until marriage comes along, but making a rash vow isn't going to help. In fact, it led in that day to an idle life which led to all kinds of sins coming into the person's life. And Paul warns that they should go remarry. Why? Because he doesn't want them to fall into idleness, giving that rash pledge to not be married. And so he says they they learn to be idle. They go from house to house, not merely idle, but gossips, busybodies, 
And so he says, look, I don't want you to give the enemy an occasion for reproach, so idleness is not helpful when those practical circumstances come upon you. Look, the Lord will sustain you with tremendous contentedness, even if you don't have a family to care for and the burden of that busyness. But in fact, single people are told in 1 Corinthians 7 that they have an undistracted devotion to Christ, so they can be busy about the things of the Lord. But idleness is problematic. Look for a moment at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. There are some very stern words for idle people. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, very stern words for people who don't get busy about the things God has called them to do. Notice verse 6 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life. This is the term which means disorderly, undisciplined, they won't get in line. You say, well, that sounds like rebellion, not idleness. Yeah, but notice how this unruliness was expressing itself. Paul uses his own ministry as a contrast. Verse 7, you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We didn't act in an undisciplined manner among you. We didn't eat another's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so we wouldn't be a burden to any of you. Look, they were an impoverished context and some other spiritual leaders would rob them of their money. And Paul says, when we were in town, we didn't do that to you. We wouldn't do that to you. We worked hard. We were an example even though we had a right to get our living from the gospel, verse 9. But as a model for you, we offered ourselves this way so you'd follow our example. And then he says, for even when we were with you, verse 10, we used to give you this charge, if anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we're hearing that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion, eat their own bread, but as for you, brethren, don't grow weary in well-doing. So there it is. You, you can become, in your idleness, tempted by various other sins that lead you astray. Let me, let me move from that to another portal that is like it, and that is the love or idolatry of leisure and fun. You say, hey, wait a minute, pastor. Those things are not in and of themselves sinful. That's true. They may not be in and of themselves sinful. In fact, they're a great gift from the Lord and sometimes on a practical level, much needed. They're given by God for our enjoyment out of his love for us and they're profitable even on a practical level. Leisure allows you time to rest from those days of weariness. God gives us that as a gift. But here's a principle that Paul talks about in his letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. You remember what he says there? All things are, what? Lawful. In other words, all the things that I do in my life aren't in and of themselves sin. God doesn't say anything about those things. If I enjoy this part of life or that activity in life or go here, go there, celebrate this holiday, go over here on this holiday, work on this day, not on another, it's, it's fine. All of those things are okay insofar as they go, but, he says, they might be lawful for me, but they may not all be expedient. They may not all be an advantage. And then he makes this statement, they're lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. And he uses that term, mastery, which means to dominate as an authority. I won't let any activity dominate me as an authority over my life. 
What happens when, when the, the joy of life in leisure and entertainment become an idolatry? What happens? What do we t- typically call that in someone's life? Laziness? Just back, backtracking to what I said a moment ago. We sometimes say someone has poor study habits. What do we mean? Oh, they like leisure too much. Leisure's great, but they like it too much because they have other spiritual priorities. What about no self-discipline? We say that someone doesn't have self-discipline when they can't seem to get their their life priorities in, in a stewardly set of controlled principles. We say someone has no self-control. We could say it this way. Here's the problem. When leisure and entertainment and fun become something you will sin to have, that particular area of temptation needs to be dealt with at that point. These things are good things, but some things in those categories may not be best for you. You have to know yourself. You have to examine yourself. Here's some practical areas where this happens, okay? You have some activity that you enjoy. I would call it a hobby. Call it whatever you want. But what happens if that becomes a way that you use to excuse other biblical priorities? Oh, I'm off doing the thing that I enjoy. But you've got other biblical priorities, family and life and job and other things that you're called by God to uphold and you neglect those and you use those times of enjoyment as an excuse. Vacations might be a wonderful privilege, but will you put your family into financial peril to impress your friends with those dream vacations that you take? What about that? What about stewardship of resources? How many times has the enjoyment of resources become an idolatry in our lives and imperiled us? How about letting the stewardship of your property and your goods go to disrepair because, after all, you've earned some time to wind down. God says we should work and enjoy it. In fact, I could even say this. Sometimes people have an idolatry of leisure and fun that's become a portal to a bitterness about work itself an unbiblical perspective about work itself. I mean, that is our culture. Man, you work for the weekend. That's all you work for. Don't work too hard. Man, I'm living for Friday. So glad it's Friday. What happens if the things you enjoy, the things that God has given as a gift, become for you a source of bitterness toward God for giving us the gift of work? God's perspective on labor, listen to this, Ecclesiastes 3.10. Labor is a God-given task which the sons of men are to be occupied with. A fool folds his hands and is consumed, Ecclesiastes 4.5. The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, chapter 5, verse 12 of Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes 10.18, laziness brings decay and idleness makes the house leak. (laughs) Very practical. Good, wholesome leisure and fun are not sinful in and of themselves, but they become idolatrous when we'll begin to to get those gifts from God as if they are deserved, as if we have a right to them, as if we will have them at all costs and we'll let other spiritual mandates go in order to benefit. It's a portal through which sin can come. Be careful. Watch yourself. Here's another portal. Fear of men. Fear of men. The portal of the fear of men. Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of men, listen to it, it brings a snare. It brings a snare. 
Life is not about the here and now. Fear of man will cause you to make it about the here here and now. Life is not about getting all you can get here for a sense of security here. James 1, 9 to 11 tells us that. Don't trust in riches. Don't trust in security. Don't trust in your material gain. Don't trust in friends. Don't trust in the earthly things. Seek the things that are above. But fear of man will make you want to get all you could get here for the sense of your own security. Fear of man brings spiritual weakness. Turn to Galatians 2 for a moment. This is is a profound concern because you don't see the fear of man coming in and when you're tested at the moment of your greatest weakness, then you're found out. And uh, even after the resurrection and the preaching ministry is on and the gospel is spreading, there was a letter written to the to the believers in the churches in Galatia and Paul writes it and he reminds them of something that happened between he and Peter because the gospel was at stake. Notice Galatians chapter 2 verse 11. When Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he was self-condemned. He stood condemned. You say, why? Well, notice verse 12. Prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. He was, this is Peter. He sat on the rooftop. Acts chapter 10, you, you remember. He was told by God, everything's clean. You can go into the house of a Gentile named Cornelius and give him the gospel. He's going to have his whole family gathered there. They're all going to come to Christ. Peter, it's all clean. Yet when he was around some Jews... Paul says there were certain men coming from James and Peter used to eat with the Gentiles but when they came he began to withdraw himself hold himself away from the Gentiles fearing the party of the circumcision. He feared these Jewish leaders. And the rest of the Jews joined him in the hypocrisy. Now he's leading. His fear of man brought such a snare to his own life, his own testimony, and his own heart before God, and he influenced other Jews. They joined him in the hypocrisy with the result, and I just, I'm sure Barnabas winced every time he thought of this, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away into the hypocrisy. Barnabas, what a godly guy. Barnabas, the guy that said, Paul, I think you're being too hard on John Mark. Let me take him under my wing on that next missionary journey. Barnabas, who served Christ, wanted Christ more than himself, he was led away into the hypocrisy. Fear of man brings a snare. It's a portal through which things come. Turn for a minute at Luke, to Luke Luke 14, rather. Luke's gospel, chapter 14, and notice what Jesus says. The fear of man brings a snare even in your family. You must love Christ more than your family. Oh, this is a tough one. I remember when I was first saved, I was learning this truth. I was listening to all this Bible teaching. My wife was a brand new believer, maybe a week. Maybe a week. And I told her, Louise, I love you, but I love Christ more than you. And she was just incensed. What? I am your wife. You should love me more than anyone. I said, I do. I love you more than anyone, and I I don't even know how to show it this early in our Christianity, marriage, but I know this. I'm called to love Christ, and I turn to this verse. Luke chapter 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me 
He does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I mean, here it is. Here's a portal through which difficulty comes because you're supposed to have an allegiance for Christ and yet strong relationships, fear of losing those relationships can draw your heart into difficult things. This was Israel's problem all along. They intermarried into the pagan nations. Why was God against that? Did he not like saving some of those people? Did he not like the influence of the the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob bringing the truth to those pagan nations? Sure, he wanted that, and he did in Israel's history. What he knew would happen if they intermarried was that those wives and those families and those extended families and aunts and uncles who worshipped false gods would begin to test this issue of the fear of man right here. Has that ever happened to you? Where you're trying to serve Christ and you can't figure out why you're weak in this area? But it's because you have idolized a family relationship, a friendship, that mentor in your life, your mother and father who don't know the Lord, a grandmother or grandfather who's an atheist, or you have idolized a, a brother or a sister and they constantly give you arguments against the truth. Or maybe it's an uncle that's really an intellectual, and they just have really wonderful philosophical arguments and discussions, and everybody sits around at that person's feet because they they just can speak with such eloquence, and you're afraid to bring just this little, definitive, very stripped down gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You're afraid of that. How about your children, parents? We don't know the Lord. You want a friendship with them so bad. You want some peace when there's been so much turmoil. And you're tempted to soften the truth that would save their soul just for a cup of tea together. Just for some interaction. And of course it's tough. You can't just... You, you know you can't navigate the bluntness of that disagreement, that light and darkness having a collision. You know you can't. So you're constantly going to God saying, Lord, help me to be wise. I, I've got to say things that are wise in the moment, and I can't say everything I want to say, and at other times I'm tempted not to say anything, but help me navigate the wisdom of that. But Lord, I've got to, I've got to fear you. I've got to love you more than them. At some point, you've got to open the door and test my fear of man because this is a portal through which false gospels will come into my family. And then my disciples will fall prey to it. I mean, beloved, I'm telling you what, that's a grief to a pastor's heart. The elders of this church have grieved so many times at someone wandering away from the truth. How did it happen? A friendship, a family relationship. Fear of man brought a snare. And then, lo and behold, weeks later, several other people get swept up in it. And you just are gripped. It's a portal. It's a huge portal. 
Jesus says, close it. Even when it involves family, close it. He's not saying hatred here. He just, that Matthew gives the equivalent and the interpretation of what Jesus actually said. He used the shocking terminology of hate to say, look, when people look at your love for Christ, there needs to be such an allegiance, such a devotion, such a love that any other relationship pales compared to it and you'll stand for Christ even if you'll stand against your family. The portal of the fear of man is huge. Always brings a snare. Two more portals. Intellectual pride. Intellectual pride. Oh, this is such a grief. Look at James chapter 3 for a moment. Book of James. We'll, we'll finish here because these last two appear in this very text. James chapter 3. This is such a portal. Look, you know, we're, we're a well-taught church. Um, not, not just because of the pulpit, but all across the church, God has saw, seen fit to raise up trained men, godly men, trained women, godly women, to lead our women and to lead our men. And, and, and the leaders of this church and the elders of the church, they, they are concerned for the truth. So we, we have a steady diet of some rich gospel things, and the Word of God comes alive for us at Grace Emmanuel. But what difference would it make if it didn't humble us? What difference does it make if it just turns us into people who think more of ourselves because of how much we might know? You know, it's interesting. Sometimes you'll hear the accusation, oh, your church thinks it knows everything. And, you know, if they can point to arrogance that's personal in someone's life, then point it out because we've got to deal with that. If they can point to, to some way in which there's proud condescension as a core sort of feature of our body life, and we've got serious confession and repentance to do. But when someone says, you guys just think you know everything, and really what the issue is, they just don't like definitive truth from Scripture, then I, I don't buy it. I just say, well, I'm sorry you feel that way, but it's about the truth. It's, it's not about us. But what about what James describes here in chapter 3? Notice what he says. Verse 13, who among you is wise and understanding? Why is he saying that? He's saying because people, people have a tendency to claim that they have wisdom, that they have understanding, that they have knowledge. And in a church this well taught, we're going to be tempted in this area. We have wisdom, we have knowledge from God's word, we have it. But the temptation to intellectual pride is so enticing. Why? Because knowledge is power. Man, when you know something more than somebody else, you feel a sense of power. When somebody tells you a juicy morsel, a secret, and you have it, it feels euphoric and powerful to know that there's five people that are waiting with bated breath to get the information from you, and you're suddenly in the catbird seat. You love that. The flesh loves to rise above other people. So in a well-taught place, we, we have a job to do, and that is to demonstrate the real wisdom from above and not some intellectual pride through which comes all kinds of wickedness. Notice, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show it by his good behavior, his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. By contrast, if you have bitter jealousy, and here it is, selfish ambition in your heart, then don't be arrogant and lie against the truth. I'll tell you what, highfalutin philosophical questions that no one can answer, all kinds of speculating that goes on in your mind because you love to hear yourself think. You love other people to know what you're thinking. 
I mean, I can tell you, I have a string of dear acquaintances and friends in my life who have become agnostics and atheists because they went off to some big degree program and they absolutely were shaken to the core over this very issue. It wasn't their faith that was too weak. It was their pride that was too stubborn. It wasn't their spiritual knowledge that was limited. Is the intellectual pride of wanting to be seen as smart, seen as intellectual, and seen as the teacher of everyone else. And it leads to what James warns against here. You're going to end up with murkiness. You're going to end up proud. You're going to lie against the truth because that wisdom isn't that which comes down from above. It's earthly and demonic and natural or literally without spirituality, without the spirit, without divine things. And then this last portal is unchecked resentment. Notice, bitter jealousy. Jealousy, selfish ambition mentioned in verse 16. It leads to disorder and every kind of evil. These are twins right here. Intellectual pride and bitter jealousy. I want to be great. I want to be great in my mind. I want to be great in your mind. And when you have greatness, I get envious and jealous. I don't like you having greatness. And if I can't have the greatness, I I hate not having it. And I don't want you to have it. These last two portals are huge. Thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think leads to chaos and disorder and bitter envy and jealousy in the heart. And suddenly you find yourself with unchecked resentment. That's that last portal, unchecked resentment. But what does wisdom from above look like? Verse 17, the wisdom from above is first pure. Man, True knowledge leads to purity of life. It leads to peaceableness. You're a peacemaker. You'll speak the truth. People have to face the truth and let the chips fall where they may. But you personally are not obnoxious. You're not belligerent. You're gentle and reasonable. That's the term for a willingness to yield your will. You're not a snob. You're not stubborn. You're submissive and soft. Real wisdom, real knowledge leads to humility and softness of heart, not arrogance. Notice this kind of person is full of mercy, good fruits. They have conviction, they're unwavering, but it's conviction without hypocrisy. It's not about them. And they never promote it about them. So there's your portals. There are your portals. The danger of those enticing relationships, enticing environments that are defiled, that are of the world, that are questionable, that can drag you in and enslave you. I said to you last week, you're going to answer before the Lord Jesus Christ for every person you helped to enslave by your ignorance and leaving those portals open, by your stubbornness and leaving these things open. Man, it's, it's, a, it's gravitas, isn't it? To think about your children and your grandchildren. Parents, what you're teaching them, what you're modeling. You young people, you have young siblings watching you. You have family members watching you. Maybe no one in your family is saved. Maybe it's just you. But maybe you've got these places where there's this temptation coming in. You don't need that. Close them up. Die to self. And live to Christ and watch what he does. Watch what he'll do. He'll 
pour out such kindness and mercy on your life, such grace. Even if you face what everybody else faces, affliction and fears about what's going on in the world and all that, you'll have a steady clarity in all that. Your wisdom will start to cut through that. There's a discernment that begins to build at your foundational level. You cannot be moved. You're unwavering without hypocrisy and there's purity of life. Close up those portals, beloved. Seek spiritual understanding. Orient your life toward truth. Let the truth indict and correct and renew your heart and seal up those portals. Four more, four more practical steps for dying to self. We'll get to those and finish them next week. Let's bow. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us in these things. It's gripping to us because we see it, how your word just cuts cleans out, opens up, exposes, soften us. Lord, don't let Satan get a foothold. He has his emissaries that even perhaps sit in our midst with sinister agendas. Thwart that. Don't let any young disciple of yours be taken, robbed of the joys of walking with you Help these seniors to be encouraged and reach out in faith and love and instruction to those who are younger so they can teach them. Help us to help one another be faithful. Help these young people to open their minds and hearts to instruction so they don't end up at the end of their life saying how I've hated it. And they don't end up with scars they don't need. Help us all in our weakness. Some of these portals are hard to close, Lord. We need your guidance and your grace and your power. May it not be because of our neglect that they remain open, but may we fight to keep them closed. May we seek you in your word, you alone. And Lord, thank you for the joy and clarity that is ours in Christ Jesus. For it is in you that are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And we want to drink from that fountain exclusively. Thank you for your love. Let us help one another in that love as we worship you, our dear Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please stand if you would. I'll just remind you as our guest, if you're with us, what a, what a joy to be together on the Lord's Day. And if you're a guest, then you maybe don't know about our ministry, our life, and we want to tell you about it. We want to minister to you. We want to pray for you. So, man, what an awesome thing to do that uh, for us as a privilege. So when we come alongside you, we have to get to know you. And so you can do that by meeting me in the office center just to greet you. If you're a guest, just, just the signs in the lobby will point you over there. I'll be over there in a few moments just to say hello to you. And it's a, it's a privilege. Six o'clock tonight is our evening service. If you don't have a a place to go on Sunday nights and you're looking for another study, we are in the book of Genesis. And tonight, we are introducing the generations now after Jacob, particularly the life of his son Joseph and, of course, his brothers. And tonight is is riveting. It is just challenging. And I'm going to introduce it talking about the sovereign providence of God and its benefit uh, as as a truth for the Christian today. What do we glean and what blessings come to us to know about and understand God's sovereign providence? And then we'll be introducing that as Joseph's life begins to unfold tonight. It is 
You don't want to miss it. And if you can't be here with us, you can always get it online tomorrow or, or live stream tonight if you can't be here at the church. So God bless you. Have a great week.